We know the book of Job is about one man's terrible suffering, and because it's in the Bible, we know it's there for more than simply as an example of great literature about suffering. So, what are the lessons we can learn from it? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pren, and welcome to Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. In today's podcast, I'll share why the lessons you can learn from the book of Job are an essential foundation for your Christian life, especially on how to handle trials and suffering, and how to help others going through a difficult time. Our topic for today is Genesis and Job, Foundational Answers to the Big Questions of Life, Part 2. First of all, I'd like to do a review on Part 1 on Genesis and Job, Foundational Answers to the Big Questions of Life. We established that the book of Job is a true telling of the life of a real individual. Job lived at the time of the patriarchs, most likely a little later than Abraham, in the land of Uz, near Midian, where Moses spent 40 years preparing for his work to lead Israel out of Egypt to the Promised Land. We also learned that at that time Moses most likely got the material for Job, which he later put into final form, which is the book of Job in our Bibles. Whether the original material for Job was in oral or written form, we don't know, but it is most likely the oldest content in our Bibles. Not the oldest event, which is obviously, of course, creation, but the oldest recorded material. As we began to answer the big questions of life, we learned that God created humanity and all there is, that Satan is a real being who instigated man's rebellion against God and the problems of Job's life, though the extent of those problems was always under the control of God. Finally, we learned that Job clearly believed in and affirmed the reality of life after death. Now we'll look at the answers to the additional big questions of life that are answered in Job. What about people who have never heard of Jesus? What does God want from us? What is our purpose in life? Why do innocent people suffer? How can we help people who are suffering? We find the answers to these questions in Job when it is correctly dated and understood. If you learn them well, You'll have a solid foundation in your Christian life that will serve you well when troubles come, and of course they always do. Remember, Jesus promised that in this world you will have tribulation. Now, of course, he went on to say, but I have overcome the world, and we know that. But yet, we've got to figure out how to deal with the troubles of life, and that's where Job will give us quite a lot of help. Now, the first question that we come up against on our big questions is, what about the people who haven't heard about Jesus? First of all, I'd like to give you some important background on why this question is important. We established in the last lesson that the teaching that there is life after death is clearly affirmed in Job. In addition to that lesson, I referred you to another lesson, Life After Death, What Does the Bible Really Teach About It? And that is a related podcast that's on Bible 805 that is now available. I redid one that I had done a number of years ago, but I added quite a bit to it, and I think you'll find it very, very helpful. This lesson shows how the reality of life after death is a clear teaching throughout all of Scripture's. 
In that lesson, I also clarified that though eternal existence is a characteristic of all humanity, eternal life, full, joyful, meaningful life in the presence of those we love and our God is only available to those who have trusted Jesus as their forgiver, Savior, and Lord. In addition, Jesus himself said that the only way to this life was through him. Which brings us back to our question, what about those who haven't heard about Jesus? If he's the only way to eternal life, the answer to this question is critically important. Now, how does the book of Job help us with an answer? It's true that no one gets into heaven without acknowledging and trusting Jesus as Savior. But for those who we assume haven't heard, how do we know what God has revealed to them? Our Bible, remember, now this is really important and it's really interesting when I I figured this out studying in the book of Job quite a while ago, but our Bible does not tell us the story of all humanity. Our Bible is primarily focused on telling us a narrow part of the human story, primarily that of a chosen people, the Jewish people in the land of Israel whose history leads us to the birth of the Messiah, Jesus. But there was and is so much more going on in the larger world. And in the Bible, we do see glimpses of that bigger reality. Of course, you know, I mean, when you think about it, God couldn't tell us about every spiritual happening in every part of the globe since the creation of the world. No, he's given us a narrow glimpse of what he sort of the main line of the story but there's so much more going on that he gives us these little glimpses of and this is what we see in Job what Job shows us when you read Job carefully you find he was not part of the chosen people he was not a Jew or a part of Abraham's line. I know, before I really studied the book, I always thought he was just another Jewish guy. No, not at all. He wasn't part of that line at all. Yet, he offered correct sacrifices, and he worshipped the true God. He was called blameless by God. He lived his life to please God. Job spoke of God as his redeemer. He believed in an afterlife. He believed in moral accountability in accord with the standards that would later be explicitly revealed in Scripture. God personally intervened in his life after his trials and restored him. Now, though Job's friends made some incorrect accusations and conclusions, it's obvious that all of them believed in Jehovah God also. But neither Job or his friends were Jews. Nothing else of their story is told either before or after this book. That isn't our only glimpse of a much greater spiritual reality. We see many little pictures in the Bible of God's saving involvement in the lives of those who were not part of 
quote unquote, the chosen people. For example, Jonah. Sometimes we get so sidetracked on the whole story of the whale and all that, but that's not the point. (laughs) Jonah was sent to preach to the Assyrians in Nineveh. It was one of the most cruel pagan nations of the time. And we know that many in Nineveh repented, trusted God, in response to one of the shortest sermons ever preached with one of the worst attitudes. Jonah simply went around the city shouting, 40 days from now in Nineveh, will be destroyed. Forty days from now and Nineveh will be destroyed. God chose to use that and many in this pagan nation were saved. Rahab, she was a woman of rather ill repute who was part of a nation that God said to totally destroy because of their idolatry when the Israelites left Egypt and were going into the promised land. She lived in Jericho. Yet she knew about God. She knew about his power, and she risked her life to hide the Jewish spies. And later, scripture tells us, she becomes an ancestor of Jesus. And then Naaman, this might be a story you might not be as familiar with, but he was the commander of the army of the king of Aram. And they were some really nasty people who later on in history were suppressors and enemies of Israel. He had a household servant. She was a captured slave. And apparently he was must have been a pretty good guy because she says, I really wish that our, our master could be healed. He was a leper. And she persuaded him to go to Israel for healing, which he did. He was healed. And in the process, he acknowledged a trust in the true God. And then we go to the New Testament, and we hear stories of missionaries today, but first of all, some of the things out of the New Testament. We have no idea what happened to the many thousands in the book of Acts, where it says that from every nation under heaven, there were people gathered at Pentecost who heard the story of Jesus and then of course they went back home to where they were from and we do assume shared this story. We read later of the story of the Ethiopian eunuch who the Apostle Philip found reading the book of Isaiah and whose heart was open to the gospel who responded by believing being baptized and then he returned to Ethiopia. Today we hear many stories of Jesus appearing in dreams to Muslims whose faith prepares them for visions and stories from missionaries who go to isolated people who somehow know the story of Jesus. They might not know that exact name, but they know the story. And I imagine there are many more stories that we won't hear until we rejoice over them in heaven. But Job gives us a very early glimpse and assurance that God is involved in much more we cannot see. So when I hear somebody say, well, what about the people that haven't heard? My first response is always, how do you know they haven't heard? God is a whole lot bigger than what we can imagine. Let's now look at what Job says about our remaining big questions of life. And because they all kind of tie together, we'll answer the next questions as a group. And to review, they are, what does God want from us? What is our purpose in life? Why do innocent people suffer? And how can we help people who are suffering? 
First of all, what does God want from us? What is our purpose in life? Well, God says Job was blameless, so I would take it that he's a pretty good person to look at to see what God wants from us, what our purpose in living should be. Look carefully at Job in chapters 23, 29, and 31, where he gets very specific on what he did in his life. But in summary, here are some of the things we can pull out of it. He treasured God's words. He helped the poor. He counseled others. He wept for those in need. He was sexually pure. He was just to the least. He did not trust in money. He did not rejoice over his enemy's misfortune. He did not conceal his sin. In summary, as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, we could just sort of say that he summarized what we're told to do in Micah 6 8, and that he did justly, he loved mercy, and he walked humbly with his God. God's requirements don't change. Personal godliness and caring for the less fortunate are always more important. They more important than religious actions and um, just all the kinds of things that we we think we need to pile on. But look at Job's life. Look at the things that he did. He is a great example. But then the question comes up: If Job did what God wanted him to do. Why didn't God continue to bless him? Now, according to Job's friends, obviously Job quit obeying God, and so he was punished, right? We know that isn't right. (laughs) We know that Satan was involved, but how does that help us understand the book and the recorded arguments from Job's friends? Why is all this in the Bible? What are we supposed to learn from it? And this is really important, so stick with me on this next little bit because this, this is extremely important, not only for studying that book, but for how people respond to God today. To understand this, you need to understand the place of genre in interpreting a book like Job. Now this, again, like I said, this is going to take me a few minutes to explain, but it's extremely important. Now what what is genre? Why is this important? Well, let me first give you the dictionary definition of genre. Genre is a category of artistic composition is in music or literature characterized by similarities in form, style, or subject matter. Now, Not only is that the definition, but it's important to understand that we approach, we read, and we interpret a piece of writing dependent upon what genre we assume it to be. For example, we read a history textbook very differently than a novel because they're different genres. If you don't know the genre of a piece of writing, you may read and interpret it incorrectly. A novel is not based on truth in the same way we assume a historical textbook is. Now this isn't just theoretical. A widely known and relatively recent error in not distinguishing genres was with Dan Brown's book The Da Vinci Code. It was a novel, a fictional piece, which the author, Dan Brown, said this is a novel. He stated it, the critics stated it, and yet there was no end of grief in Christian circles by people who read it as a historical text. They thought these things really happened and that all of the doubt that it cast on the Bible was not true. (laughs) This gave me subject material to teach Sunday school classes for a year where I went through and carefully showed how 
all of the things that um, the book said was wrong. But at its foundation, it was a simple genre error. People were reading a novel as if it was a historical textbook, which it was not. Now, how does this apply to reading and studying the Bible? There is an absolutely excellent book out that I cannot recommend enough. It's entitled How, the, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. And this book applies genre study to the Bible. And I will actually be using it throughout the podcast as I go through the Bible in the coming year because the Bible contains a number of different types of genre. We have the occasional letters. There are different genres than the historical narratives. And apocalyptic literature is a different genre than the gospel biographies. Each one has their own guidelines for proper understanding and application. And I will do separate lessons on them as we go through the Bible. For example, I'll be doing one on how to understand the genre genre of narr- of the narrative writings through the Old Testament which I think you I think you'll find all of that very interesting but what they point out in their discussion of the book of Job which is so important is that the book of Job is part of what is called the wisdom literature genre and a key characteristic of wisdom literature is that and Listen, if you don't hear anything else, listen to this very carefully. In wisdom literature, you must read all the book, the entire book, beginning to end, carefully to understand the argument and then the all-important conclusion at the end of the book. Here is God's conclusion at the end of the book of Job in Job 42.7 where it says, After the Lord had said these things to Job, he says to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken truth about me as my servant Job has. You must keep this in mind when you read the statements and arguments of Job's friends. Their arguments sound so good, so sensible, but God's summary of their arguments is that they were not true. Now here's an example of what sounds very good but is very wrong. This is a typical statement from Job's friends. Submit to God and be at peace with him. In this way, prosperity will come to you. Accept instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove wickedness from your tent, you will pray to him and he will hear you. And you will fulfill your vows. What you decide will be done and light will shine on your ways. Now, let me just sort of underline verbally a couple of a few statements. First of all, that one, submit to God and be at peace with him in this way. Prosperity will come to you. And then the ending statement, what you decide on will be done and light will shine on your ways. You may not in agreement. You may think, oh yeah, that, that's, that sounds good. You know, I do this, then God will do that. Until you remember that God said their words were not true. Well, what's wrong with that? You might say, shouldn't we submit to God? Shouldn't we be at peace with him? Shouldn't we return to him? Yes, of course we should. But that isn't the problem. Here's the problem. The problem is that by doing what we are supposed to do, 
Humans do not obligate God to respond in the way a human thinks God should respond and when they think God should do it. Let me say that again. Just because, or I'll say it kind of in a different way, just because we do what God tells us to do, that does not mean that he is obligated to then give us goodies right now, right now, when I want it. This view of suffering and reward is an incorrect transactional view of humanity's relationship to God. Let's examine it carefully, because without thinking, this is how many people believe God acts today, and it is wrong. But not only that, it is ultimately extremely disappointing, because God, because people are expecting God to do things that he never promised he would do. Job's friends believed Job sinned, and he deserved to be punished. If he quit sinning, everything would work out well. They believed evil is punished and good is rewarded by prosperity. Now here's where it gets tricky. On a continuous basis in this life. Like they said, submit to God, be at peace with Him. In this way, prosperity will come to you. Accept instruction from His mouth and lay up His words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. God did not validate that belief then, and He doesn't today. This is prosperity gospel preaching. If you do this, God will do that. No, that's not how it works. We do not obligate God to do anything for us just because we obey Him. He is our Creator and God. We owe Him obedience, regardless of what He does for us or when He does it. This is not a popular view. It wasn't then, in Job's time, and it isn't today, but it is true. Job also fell victim in some of his reactions to this same error. You see, Job correctly disagreed with their conclusions that he'd sinned and deserved this punishment. And he pointed out how often evil people prospered and that this formula just did not work in real life. And he again and again said that. God affirmed his statements of that. But... Then Job's thinking took a wrong term, turn when Job thought that God had made a mistake. Job argued that if God realized how righteous he, Job, was, the things had changed. In many ways, he had the same transactional view of how God relates to us as his friends did. He thought, he thought that somehow God was at fault in this, that God didn't really realize or he'd forgotten or whatever what a good guy Job was. God did not make a mistake. In allowing Job to suffer. He allowed it. At the same time, he set limits to it. After allowing Job's friends and Job himself a lengthy exposition of their human explanations for suffering and what they were supposed to do, God then speaks. Job had demanded an audience with God, but when he got it, it did not go as he expected. Instead of validating their transactional view of God and what that God owed Job an answer, God spoke, and this is what he said, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Do you know how its dimensions were determined and who did the surveying? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy.
God continues with passage after passage, reminding Job of all creation, the stars, the animals, the many things Job cannot understand or control, and how God is in charge of all of them. Job then wisely responds. Job replied to the Lord and said, I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. My eyes, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. In his recorded conversation with Job at the end of the book, Job never got an answer from God as to why he suffered. We do not know if he was ever told about the conversations in heaven that led to his sufferings, or if that was added later by Moses as a result of divine revelation for us later readers to be able to read and understand. We do know that Job simply saw God and his power and control of all things, and that was enough. Now let me give you some application thoughts from what we've learned so far from Job. We are not guaranteed simple answers to the trials and troubles of this life. Most certainly the answer as to why things happen is not sort of a baptized version of karma. It is not this transactional view of God where we do certain things and God will respond in a certain way. God is not a genie under our control. We do know that there is much more going on than we are aware of. Spiritual warfare is a reality. Ephesians 6 tells us that our struggles are not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Somehow, we're part of it. Somehow the troubles of this world are part of it. And as we know that in our trials, we are being watched by God and angels and demons. We don't know how, we don't know what we're supposed we really don't know exactly whether God pointed us out specifically or not. We don't know that. But we know we are somehow being watched in this great spiritual warfare struggle. What we do in our lives and trials matters, perhaps far more than we can imagine. And we must remember that God is in control of the limits, the timing, and the extent of our trials. So how should we respond? Now, the reality of spiritual warfare is not an excuse to sloppy living or a lack of responsibility. Oh, it's not my fault. It's spiritual warfare. The demons are out to get me, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. We can't do that. In the case of Job and throughout all of Scripture, God judges right and wrong responses to trials. To respond correctly when troubles come, first, we need to ask for wisdom to discern as much as possible what's going on. Remember in James 1.5, God promises to give us wisdom when we ask, and if there is ever a time that we need wisdom, it's when we're going through a difficult time. 
First, we need to ask, is there a sin that needs to be corrected? Because oftentimes, troubles are our fault. It's not any big spiritual issue. It's just we did something really dumb, and we there are consequences to it. When that happens, consider Hebrews 12, and I'll read the passage to you in just a minute, and Psalm 1, 1967. God allows things sometimes to difficult things as a correction in our life, but always because he loves us. In Hebrews it says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And this verse, I really like it, uh, although I feel like sometimes I've had to apply it way too much. But anyway, in Psalm 119.67, it says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. Sometimes we need to get smacked a time or two before we follow the instruction book. If we discern a sin, something that needs to be corrected, we confess it, we accept God's forgiveness, and we make plans to move on. There are many other reasons that God sends us challenges in life. I sometimes think that the more, well, I don't think, I know, um, I've, I've experienced this, I've seen this with other people, the more you grow in your Christian life, sometimes the harder life gets. I think the Lord expects more of us the longer we walk with Him, as we expect more from an adult in terms of good behavior than we do of a toddler. And for us to grow spiritually, we need challenges, we need trials, we need pruning in our lives. C.S. Lewis put it this way, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. As painful as things might be, a truth every parent or teacher knows is that without training and discipline, a child is a terror and a disappointment to everyone they encounter. God wants us to be children he can be proud of before others and the hosts of heaven. Some of us need a little more discipline, a little more corrective training than others to become that. Or, on the other hand, reminding ourselves of Job again, someone might be a very good child. And for reasons that person might never know outside of heaven, they are given great trials to show the hosts of heaven that they will trust God even when life is very hard. Remember also that God works what we talk about in in current um, vocabulary or whatever we call the long game. That's how God works. 
God did not create us solely for this tiny time of earthly life. His plans for us are much larger, much longer. We see hints of this again in places like Ephesians 2, 6 and 7 where it talks about how he raised us up with him and made us to sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Also, in the passages such as the parable of the talents, where the reward for a wise use of talents is greater responsibility at a future time, and the many teachings of future rewards tied to how we respond to various situations in this life, it seems clear God is not discipling, pruning, training us for this life only. The believers in Hebrews the seven in Hebrews eleven, excuse me, said they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them from a distance and admitted they were aliens and strangers on earth. And their story summed up with a great challenge to us in Hebrews twelve, one and two, where it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before us, let us endure whatever, whatever trial you are in. Now, how to help others, what we learn from Job. Please share what I previously talked about. One of the best things I really think you can do, that you can give also for a suffering friend, is the truth that the Christian life is not a transactional exercise of be good and get goodies, be bad and get smacked. Share instead an eternal perspective that God is in control and will work out all things one day. That might not always help in the moment. It might not always be appreciated, but it's the truth. It is a core truth that we would do so much better in much of life if we truly understood and believed that. At the same time, don't be a miserable counselor, one who condemns or judges. We never know why or what God is doing. The person suffering may be greatly honored by God. And even if they are going through a time of discipline, let God do it. Don't pile on. Don't shoot the wounded. As Job said, to the one in despair, kindness should come from his friend even if he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers have been as treacherous as a seasonal stream. You don't want to be that. We always want to be kind to our friends who are going through a suffering time. Also, don't give false hope. Don't quote verses out of context. I think that's that's one of the most dreadful things we can do. We might want to make somebody feel better in the moment, but that ultimately doesn't help if it isn't true. God is in control, but it doesn't mean things will get better in this life. Remind yourself and others, ultimate healing and blessing are guaranteed, but timing is not. We will be healed. We will be blessed. 
Maybe on this earth? Maybe not. It did get better for Job and for Joseph. Job suffered during all this time, then he got everything back and more. Joseph was in prison and abused and sold as a slave, then he becomes ruler of Egypt. Great outcomes for both of them. But it didn't get better for Jeremiah. I'm sometimes sad. I read his story and he preached a long time, but oh my goodness, he never had a good day. His life was just dreadful, it seemed like. Or the Apostle Paul. I have sometimes summarized the Apostle Paul's life in this way. Go to a city, preach, get stoned, get kicked out, get left for dead. Go to the next city, repeat the same thing. Get stoned, get kicked out, get left for dead. Go to the next city, repeat the same thing. And then, after years and years and years of doing that, how does he end up? In the most horrible prison that Rome has, and he's beheaded for his faith. That is what sometimes happens to the servants of God. That's what happened to Jeremiah, to the Apostle Paul, to many of the unnamed heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. On this earth, things did not get better, and it didn't get better for Jesus also. On this earth, he died abandoned by all of his friends except for one. And yet we know the final ending to his story. And of course, the sadness on this earth is not the end of our story either. It also, it helps to remind us that it didn't get better for Moses. And this is why I think God had him read Job's writings and write it when he did. It didn't get better for Moses from an earthly viewpoint. After 40 years of exile, he answers God's call to lead Israel out of Egypt. But then he spends the next 40 plus years babysitting a quarreling, unthankful, constantly complaining group of people. And then he doesn't get to go into the promised land because he loses his temper. As C.S. Lewis again said, the real difficulty is to adapt one's steady beliefs about tribulation to this particular tribulation, for the particular, when it arrives, always seems so particularly intolerable. Acknowledge that trials may be intolerable now, but they won't last forever. Now, advice on what to do in the midst of trials, because uh, whether it's for us or our friends, we must live through them. First of all, do not wait until anything for the pain to go away, for things to get better, um, whatever. It's always so easy to say, well, after this or that happens, then I will do what God wants me to. Nope, you never know. So jump right into number one, express thanks. Not for but in all circumstances. Remember in Thessalonians it says, in everything give thanks, not for. Some things are truly horrible. So we we aren't thankful for the pandemic or for when people die or for poverty or for financial difficulties or just all kinds of things, sickness or just so many things. We're not thankful for those things, but we can say thankful in every circumstance. One of the things that I've I've really tried to do in my life is just as a discipline, is when something really hard comes up, I just say, Lord, I'm going to say thank you. You've said to say thank you. I'm going to say thank you. I must confess, I don't really feel thankful. Um, I'm maybe having a hard time with this, 
but you say th- you say that we are to be thankful and so I'm going to try very hard to do that and at least I will verbalize that to you. It is amazing how that changes things. Oftentimes if I do that I see something a benefit in it that maybe I hadn't before so we want to express thanks. And then another thing I I've really tried to do this is to affirm that you serve a good God. I will sometimes when I'm alone I will I will do this verbally and sometimes at, at some of the most hardest times in my life when I do feel that maybe part of it is spiritual warfare, but even if it isn't, even if there's only, you know, maybe it's a real minor thing and maybe there's only just one little demon watching me and thinking, well, I wonder what she's going to do now. I'll sometimes literally shake my fist at the heavens and just say, no matter what's happening, I believe God is a good God. You are a good God. And I believe that pleases our Lord. Um, Again, sometimes I might say it through tears. I might say it, you know, just in a really dreadful time. But he is a good God. And I want the hosts of heaven to know that I believe that. Live for God as best you can, no matter what the circumstances. Study the Bible. Um, Read it in chronological order to know what it truly teaches. There's so much false teaching out there. People saying, oh, the Bible says this or the Bible says that. Well, maybe it says it, but it's totally out of context. Or like the book of Job, if you read it and you listen to the teaching that I'm I'm doing on it, and and it's it's not, you know, anything original with me. There's all kinds of commentaries and all that that affirm what I'm saying. But... Um, study it. Read, for example, again, the book of Job, just read the whole thing. Read it as a part of wisdom literature and realize that the conclusion is at the end and then you'll know how to understand the various sayings that Job's friends um, brought up. Study your Bible. That will tell you how to act in hard times. If there's sin in your life, and sometimes too, in reading the Bible, we don't even realize something's wrong till we read about it. We think, oh, that's not pleasing to the Lord. I didn't really realize that. We, especially in our world today, we aren't going to learn how to act properly through the media or through different things. So, um, Sometimes we, when we realize that something's a sin, give it up. If it, and if you need help, get help on that. Give sacrificially. Sometimes when people are struggling, they don't want to. Um, they don't want to give to others. They don't want to give financially. They don't want to give their time. C.S. Lewis, again, I quote him a lot because obviously I think he had a lot to say. One of the things when someone asked him about what's the right amount to give, he pointed out very correctly that, you know, the tithe is an Old Testament uh, standard and um, that that isn't the New Testament standard. Um, obviously, and as, as uh, Hank Canegraaff says, the tithe is a great place to start. It's what he calls training wheels. But sometimes people think, oh, they give a tithe, or maybe they give a little bit of their time to this or that. They've done enough. But what C.S. Lewis said, and I really like this, he said, give until it pinches. And he said, if your lifestyle and your giving of your time and your um, money and etc., if that's about what other people give and you're totally comfortable with it, he said, that's probably not enough. 
And I do like that because um, maybe we don't have a lot financially, but maybe we can give our time. And if doing things for the Lord doesn't perhaps impinge on our hobbies or whatever, maybe we're not giving enough. And so, again, that's something I'm not going to tell you exactly what to do, but no matter what Dip, how difficult a situation you're in, you can always give something. Maybe it's your prayers. Maybe if you're flat on your back, all you can do is pray for people. But whatever we are told to give, that's a characteristic of our God, and He wants us to do that also. Start living a holy life. Now, holy means set apart. Review what needs to be changing in your life. Often there's things that maybe need to be pruned away from our life. Uh, Remember in John 15, Jesus said that he sometimes prunes us so we'll be more fruitful. And and we can either cooperate in that or we can struggle against it. Uh, Don't do these things, of course, to obligate God to bless you. But because he is worthy of every sacrifice, of every discipline that we might bring to our life. And share your faith. Uh, Trials tend to give us a lot of opportunities. When we get through something and, and people see that, many times people will ask, well, how did you handle that? And you say, well, you know, wasn't up to me, but the Lord helped me in it. And you can share your faith through it. Don't give up when hard times come. Don't confirm Satan's accusation that you only serve God when things are going well. Sometimes when, when stuff has been really hard in my life, I'll think, well, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm kind of grumpy right now, but I'll, I'll be better when things get better. And it's sort of like, oh, really? Well, so that shows how much you trust me, huh? And I think, well, okay, good point. Um, You know, I need to be joyful and thankful of what I have, no matter if if it's tough or if it's, you know, if I wish I had something else or whatever, to be thankful right now because he is worthy of it. And I don't want to confirm Satan's statement that we only serve God when things are going well. No, we serve God because he is a good God, good God, and he is worthy of our devotion. In closing, let's review what we learned from Job in answering the big questions of life. How did we get here? God created us and all there is. What messed things up? Humanity in turning away from God, believing Satan rather than God. Who is Satan and what power does he have? He's a created being, under God's control. But for now, he's causing a lot of pain and suffering, and he constantly accuses believers. Is there life after death? Yes! It is clearly taught from Job and Genesis to Revelation. Please see the lesson, Life After Death, for more. What about people who've never heard about Jesus? We don't know what they've heard, but we do know God is at work in many ways we know nothing about. Why do innocent people suffer? There are many reasons we don't understand, but we know all suffering is under God's control and no suffering will last forever. How can we help people who are suffering? Be kind, be honest, encourage them to develop an eternal view. What does God want from us? What is our purpose in life? To do justly, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God, 
This was demonstrated by Job and summarized in Micah 6.8. And God will show us the specifics in our lives if we follow Him, no matter how challenging life might be. A few concluding thoughts and just underscoring some of the key teachings that we've been through. It is incredibly important for us, as it was, I think, for Moses, to understand these truths before we go through the Bible and through life. I think Job need I think Moses needed Job's story before he could serve for forty plus years in the situation he did. God does not react with us on a transactional basis of if we do this, he's guaranteed to do that when we want him to. This is such an important foundational lesson for us to understand. God will do as he chooses, even if it involves temporary suffering. Spiritual warfare is a reality, and it is pervasive, unrelenting, and it somehow involves us, though God is always in control. God's will for us and what happens to us goes way beyond this life. And His will and plans for us are good. We may not get a personal vision of God as Job did, but we see Him in His Word. And in His Word He promises all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. And He will someday wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor mourning, nor crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And of course, that wonderful passage in Psalm 23 where it says, Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Keep in mind the lessons of Job, the long view of the trials of life, and that at the end of it all, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's all for now. If the podcast has been useful to you, please support it through your donations and prayers. For how to do that, plus the notes from this lesson, related resources, and helpful links, go to www.bible805.com. In closing, I'm Yvonne Prynne, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to end with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.